Yeah, you know, typically I come on here where I talk about kind of weird and bizarre movies and uh, occasionally we take a little, uh, uh, you know, we get a little scholarly sometimes with things. And so today is one of those days where we got my scholar cap on, got my <laughs> cup of Ethiopian coffee going here, and nice. we're going to be uh, talking about Martin Scorsese today. Um, he's got a new movie coming out on Friday the 20th, so it felt appropriate to talk about, uh, to do a top 10 list focused on one filmmaker. Um, but this is a little different than just like running down a top 10 list of our favorite films from him. Um, I'm kind of taking a cue from him uh, back in the 90s. He made this uh, sort of uh, what would maybe be called like a video essay today with a doc, you know, an educational video called A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese through American movies. And he kind of touches upon the entire history of movies, uh, American movies up to the time he started. And so um, I figured we'll do a top 10 list that is my personal journey through Martin Scorsese cinema and how it's kind of uh, shaped me and impacted uh, movies in general. Sounds good. Sounds good. I, I think everyone gets where we're going with that. And so like real quick, though, for, for individuals who aren't sure who Martin Scorsese is, because while for us, which we are old folks now, <laughs> we, we know who Martin <laughs> Scorsese is, but a lot of yeah. other five listeners... Mm -hmm they don't come from the generation of Martin Scorsese. So so mm -hmm. who is this? Without saying any of the names of movies, who is Martin Scorsese? Yeah, I mean, he's arguably uh, the greatest American filmmaker to ever live. He's clearly, he's uh, he's uh, been at the forefront of cinema for almost 50 years now. He is um, a professor, a, you know, a, a, a preservationist of cinema he loves to talk about the importance of of um, visual literacy and uh he makes very visceral spiritual uh uniquely american films and um he's his influences is kind of everywhere and um i think right now another he's very hot right now on the internet even though he's 80 years old about his opinions about the direction that cinema and american studio system is going and that it's on a it's on its last leg and it's some people consider controversial but he's he's out there trying to make points to save this uh this art form that he loves so much yeah we can talk about that at the end because i i am aware of his latest comments out there on the internet um mm -hmm. and the controversy that's coming around it but let's save that one yeah. for the end all right so Absolutely. so now people they know who martin scorsese is they know what this top 10 list is about Let's dive in. Why don't we go through some of Martin Scorsese's, some of your favorite Scorsese films? What do you got for number 10? Yeah, so number 10, I'm going to be talking about the, the two films. We've got a tie here for this one, but I thought they were important to put together because these two films illustrate the environment that made this man, um, where he's from, and how that influences his films. And we're talking about a documentary he made in 1974 called Italian American, and the feature, the narrative feature he made called Mean Streets. Uh, so the Italian American is a documentary he made about his parents who are first generation Italian um, 
Americans, their parents came from Sicily and uh, Scorsese made this documentary just about his parents and how they interact and how uh, his mom makes uh, the sauce and how his dad doesn't like to talk a lot and how these two get along. Um, and it re he really shows, you know, what it was like to be an Italian American in the 70s, having lived through the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and the difference in differences in their generations, but also it's really funny. His parents are, are you know, you could really see how they created the, his personality um, and what he takes from both of them. Um, but the flip side to that is he he makes this uh, his breakthrough film, which was Mean Streets in 1973, which is about these low level uh, guys trying to break into the mafia. Uh, one guy is about these two best friends, one guy who's completely out of control, who's played by Robert De Niro, and the main character who is struggling with his ability to be a leader and kind of, um, you know, um, balance his spirituality with the things that he sees in the streets. Uh, and that person is played by Harvey Keitel. And so these two things, like his parents and then the, the environment he's from, living in Little Italy growing up, um, is depicted in this film, Mean Streets, uh, seeing daily violence, seeing these guys live by this code or people who try to get into that and maybe treat up and spit out of it. Um, and so these two, these two types of films, the ones that really inform his background and I think uh, made him, um, you know, something different on the screen. Because there are a lot of Italian filmmakers, a lot of Italian American filmmakers before him, like Vincent Minnelli or Francis Ford Coppola, uh, but they didn't really bring through um you know their their heritage into their cinema and these two films are great examples of those you know i like this this combo uh, even though i was surprised i was like tie for number 10 i was like here we go but um i like this combo i've never seen either one of them but i i'll tell listeners right away i'm very aware of who martin scorsese is i've seen a lot of scorsese films so i have i never heard of italian american but i have most certainly heard of mean streets and also to give people a bit of perspective too, especially newer lo-fi listeners. And they're, when we're talking about uh, Italian-Americans and this film in 1974, this was still very much an era where Italian-Americans were viewed, I mean, from the 70s all the way to the early 1900s as like the new immigrants in the US. There was a lot of discrimination against them. They were associated with gangs. They were associated mm -hmm. with the mafia. Like if you were an Italian American, you were stereotyped right away and was like, oh, that must be a mafia person. And if if that sounds familiar to stereotypes you hear about other immigrants today, it's true. It's just the immigrants that people do it to has shifted. But at this point in time, 50 years ago, I think it was great uh, for Scorsese to, you know, go into his own house, his own family, and say, like, look, these are my parents. They're Italian Americans, they are not mafia. And on the flip side, then he does a movie about Italian Americans being in the mafia and being horrible. <laughs> um, so I like it's a weird dichotomy. And and like I said, I never saw Italian American. It looked like a cool docu series or a documentary. But Mean Streets, I'm really really familiar with. Uh, just I haven't seen it, and it yeah, really it made I think, me. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say like with Mean Streets, I think it's just like stuff he was observing every day. Um, seeing these guys in the streets and i love the juxtaposition of this film with the, his parents who did everything they could to keep his family out of that kind of business um you know the the italian american is a great example to break those stereotypes to show working class italian americans people who are not involved in in organized crime people who are just trying to get along in life and um yeah they just work so well together yeah i think so i think so
And I think Mean Streets was also, it reminded me right away of your next film, but in a very different way. It's almost mm -hmm. like two different takes on the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and with that being said, I think a lot more people probably do know what your next film is. What do you have for number nine? <laughs> yeah, so number nine is a movie I want to get out of the way. Um, and but I will. I, I do think it has a lot of merits, and it's a great film. It's uh, to me, it's almost like a flawless film. But uh, I want to talk about Goodfellas, but I want to talk about it early uh, because Goodfellas, I think, has a reputation in different circles for different reasons. Uh, but Goodfellas is really a movie where Martin Scorsese changed cinema. It changed his career. It changed so much. Um, and like Mean Streets, it's a film that is completely that plunges as deep as it can into the culture that it's in. Um, and so it's a film that's uh, not only a character study of its main character, Henry Hill, who was a real life um, gangster on the fringes of the mafia. And uh, so it's sort of his life tale, but it's also like an encyclopedic, um, you know, uh, tome of what it's like to be in a, in that Italian crime family. Uh, it goes so deep into all these details about how the crimes work and just how it's sort of related to this um, this culture that it comes from. Um, but the thing about the movie that's um, kind of changed cinema is the, at the speed at which it moves. Like a lot of Scorsese's films are very fast paced, but this movie is, it just, uh, it runs from scene to scene to scene uh, without losing any of its uh, impact. Um, and it's two and a half hours long and it just moves it as such a, um, at a high speed to put you in the the mind of someone who is seduced by this way of life um, and that energy that it creates. And of course, it brings in the drug element and how that makes your life feel even like it's moving at a faster speed. Um, and so Scorsese has this gift of being able to uh, emerge you or submerge you in all of this, um, all these feelings to make you feel like you are flying by the seat of your pants with these characters in this scenario um and it doesn't have a traditional middle beginning and end actually the movie actually begins in the middle of the movie it takes you back to the beginning takes you back to the middle and then takes you to the end of the film um all while being self-aware with um narration that um is kind of telling you as things happen but they're being told to you from some sort of present uh someone looking back on their life um and it's also like famous for a character who isn't really remorseful for his actions by the end. A lot of gangster films prior to this usually have some sort of moral grounding um, that's uh, once the bottom falls out on a, on a on someone's life like this, they kind of have remorse. So they want to talk about, uh, you know, go to schools and talk about things, keep people out of trouble. But uh, this is a film where the main character is like, oh, I should have been better at this, you know, otherwise things wouldn't have ended the way they, that they did. And so um, for a lot of ways, like you can see this film many people ripped it off like boogie nights and many biopics today all want to have this sort of good fellows feel to them and uh he was the first to kind of create this new kind of narrative formula um and it's you know it really is the film that launched him into into being considered a critical um master even though he'd made many of many great films before this one but this is the one that kind of you know changes the trajectory of his skill and uh and you know makes his name uh, a brand yeah this one i have seen i've seen a lot i haven't seen it mm -hmm. recently but i know i've even seen it with you way way mm -hmm. long ago and mm -hmm. just let people know so goodfellas came out in 1990 right and 
I think you're right for so many reasons. Like this movie, I think broke into, I mean, like mafia movies and and some gangster movies were popular before, like Godfather and things like that, or or Scarface. Uh, but I think this film like went a different direction, kind of, or just hit people in a different kind of way. And I think this this film influenced so many other different films and TV shows later, but also like just culture about how we as society started thinking about the mafia and at a time where the mafia itself was in decline, right? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess when this film came out, um, it was sort yeah, sort of in the, in the, uh, the height of the FBI taking it down, like the, the mention of the Rico act. And, um, and I think it was kind of the height of the Gotti, uh, reign in New York. And so, um, yeah, this was like during the last hurrah of the mafia at its at its, uh, at its heights, I would say. Yeah, and I think this this film. So I, I do love this film, but in the same way, in the same at the same time, I I can't watch this film anymore. Like, just it's it's dragging down the character, and I think in a very real world like representation of like, there's only one, one of two ways that this lifestyle ends: either mm -hmm. in jail or dead. Yes. Like that, that's that, those are the two options here. Mm -hmm. And so this movie takes you on that journey. And it's like, at first, it's cool to watch it. And you're like, you're into it all. But at the end, I think over over time, as I've gotten older, and as I watched it time and time again, it's like, God, this movie sucks. You know, like, <laughs> it's a it's, it's such a great movie. But you want to mm -hmm. have I like to have movies where you can get behind the main character and they win. And that does not happen with this movie. The main yeah, character yeah. is not a good mm -hmm. person. The main character does not win. Like you're just like, bam. All right. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a uh, it's important to differentiate how people feel about this film because there's certain circles who idealize this movie. They idealize the the way that people live, uh, and sort of neglect the other half of the movie, uh, or the second half of the movie that kind of shows you the consequences of this life. Um, but I think what Scorsese's fascination with it is, is what attracts people to this kind of life. And a lot of crime films and gangster films don't really show the seduction of a lifestyle like this. Like, right. like the opening line of this movie is, you know, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And then it shows you the glamour and the facade of this lifestyle that seduces this man into this life. And when you're looking at it, when you're looking at it from his point of view, there is no downside. Um, and he learns the hard way that there is a huge downside um, to a life of crime. And so um, I think he's like one of the only filmmakers that, um, or at least he's not one of the only ones who, who does this, but he is one of the ones who pioneered wanting to show um, the the duality to a, a lifestyle like this. For sure. For sure. I definitely dig that. And it, he definitely achieves that for sure. <laughs> But like you said, I think and we get that one out of the way because that's probably the one a lot of people are most aware of. Yeah, um, yeah. But let's move to your number eight. And this is another mm -hmm. one I am really well aware of. Just I've never seen. What, oh, what is yeah. your number eight? Cool, yeah. So uh, he makes Goodfellas in 1990, but uh, for the decade prior to that, it was a really rough decade for Scorsese and many uh, artistic filmmakers in this country because the 80s uh, – American cinema moved towards commercialism uh, in a big way. And so um, to kick off the 80s, he makes this film called The King of Comedy. And it's a 180 uh, 
away from the tough masculine films that he had been known for. Um, and it's a completely different kind of role uh, for its star, Robert De Niro, who has been in many of Scorsese's films. Um, in fact, they're very synonymous for working together in many, many of their movies. And so The King of Comedy is about uh, celebrity obsession. And uh, it's about this guy who wants to be a late night comic. Uh, however, he doesn't have the talent for it. And he doesn't uh, have the drive to work at achieving his success. He wants to be able to slot himself straight in at the top. And his obsession is with a, a late night talk show host like Johnny Carson, except for it's played by Jerry Lewis in this film. Uh, and he does a fantastic job playing um, the sort of seasoned uh late night comic and Robert De Niro's character becomes uh unhinged basically he just gets obsessive to the point of where he is he is going to become dangerous and gets involved into a kidnap plot kidnapping plot to kidnap this comedian in order to to get his chance to be on the show and so um this is a movie came out in 1982 this is right after the assassination of John Lennon um and we'll talk about another film that he as Scorsese made later on in this list, but he had made a film with Jodie Foster and there was the entire um, thing with John Hinckley and his obsession with Jodie Foster to start that led him to to try to assassinate Ronald Reagan. And so someone was touching on a lot of things going on at the time. Um, it is a really funny film and it is a very engaging film, but it absolutely bombed the box office. Uh, oh, yeah. Critics, some critics liked it, but critics uh, tore it apart. They did not like De Niro playing this weaselly role they didn't like um you know the turn away from sort of the types of films that Scorsese had previously made and uh this is a huge setback for him because it was kind of uh paraded around as the bomb of the year um uh, even though now it's been reappraised as, as being um a great film and I think it's a great film and um uh, the clashes in it they're in they're in the one scene in New York Sandra Bernhardt is a excellent supporting role in the film and um at the time, yeah, it was just a, such a, a, a tough film for him to overcome. Um, I think it's uh, important to look back at some of the older films he made, not just the, his greatest hits of gangster films, because there are these these sorts of uh, gems like this one that are in his filmography. So like I said, I'd, I'd never seen this one, but I automatically, like I knew it. And then I was watching the trailer and I was like, that that newer DC movie, that Robert De Niro is in, mm -hmm. the Joker. Mm -hmm. That seems like a complete ripoff of this movie in a kind of way. Is it? I mean, I've never seen yeah. King of Comedy, but the 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 plot of the Joker and even having De Niro in it, it kind of seems like it borrows. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but I know it borrows heavily from this film and from another film that we're going to talk about later. Um, yeah, to, both of those movies kind of inform most of what happens in that movie. Yeah, and that's interesting because, like, so this movie you said was a box office bomb. Yeah. The Joker made over a billion dollars mm -hmm. using much of the same movie. I mean, so, yeah. yeah, Scorsese, 30 years, 40 years later. No, it's about 40 years later. You know, mm -hmm. his his work is still being revisited. Yeah. Right, let's keep going. What's this, this number seven? And we've talked about this one before. Yeah, uh, if we did, I don't recall when, but yeah, this is a favorite of mine. I love this movie, um, but this, yeah, like like I just said in the previous one, the 80s were like really rough for Scorsese, and so he comes off a of can comedy, and he tries to get another film made, um, a film that's very 
close and near and dear to his heart and he gets up to the finish line of post or pre, of pre-production and then everything gets um yanked out from beneath him um i'm going to talk a little bit about more what that film is later but uh he's really at the lowest point of his life he has no idea what he's doing um he's kind of questioning himself in in his artistic choices and whether he has the the uh sand to continue on in this career and so this he gets the script called after hours delivered to him and it kind of makes him want to find his way again into making a quick fast movie and so he makes this incredible comedy about a yuppie who goes out to soho for one night to try to get laid and it becomes a uh like a kafka-esque nightmare for him to try to get out of soho and it takes place in one night and he just can't get out and every everyone he meets is after him and things just keep escalating and escalating and escalating um and it's one of the great like run all night comedies ever made and really to scorsese it's just him rebuilding all of his uh his fortitude into making films and even though it's a comedy it's got all of his great trademarks all of his camera movements um all of his like um rapid editing and it's laugh out loud funny but uh it's really a film if you look at it from his point of view about responding to rejection uh just trying to persevere through all of these things constantly trying to knock you down um yeah this this is one of those uh like real hidden gems it's kind of resurfaced it's kind of surfaced over the last uh, number of years you just got a 4k release uh restoration and release from the criterion collection this year um it's steeped in like the punk uh scene of the 80s um as well and so a uh, sort of time capsule of the city that doesn't exist or the parts of the city that don't exist anymore um and yeah so i would highly recommend if you have you haven't seen any of the films on this list and you want to watch um a wild and crazy uh new york movie this would be the one that i would highly recommend i think i echo that even though i never saw it this this trailer was crazy funny and it <laughs> like as much as i dislike the 1980s and for those who've never heard me say it hear me say it i dislike the 1980s there was nothing fun about it except for maybe a few cartoons anyway moving on but i i think this movie represented what was at least kind of funny about the 1980s and some cool stuff about it so i definitely i i'm into checking this one out uh, you definitely caught me with it for sure well, where are we going for number six? I think people may may know about this next one. What do we got? Yeah, I certainly hope so. Uh, so we're going to jump far into the future from where we produce a word. And there's a lot to cover between there. But uh, I want to jump to the 21st century because I think Scorsese's entered a new phase of his of his career um, post um, the 90s. And a lot of the films he made his, has been making uh in recent memory have all been historical dramas and um one of my personal favorites that i wanted to put on this list is the aviator from 2004 because i think it's a spectacular movie um that covers a lot of ground a lot of history and is just one of the finest directed films i think of my lifetime um it's about howard hughes who had many different professional uh, endeavors in his life he was rich and it was born rich and so he invested his money in uh aviation and he invested his film his money in films in hollywood and so he really wanted to break into this he wanted to be this mega celebrity um not too different from your elon musks of of our time but had a much bigger um in a much bigger way um and so this is a film starring leonardo DiCaprio. this is their second film they made together uh, and he starts as howard hughes who this film kind of uh, captures 
just a snippet of his life, which is like the 30s through the 50s. Um, so it doesn't really talk about Howard Hughes uh, later in life, but Howard Hughes famously suffered from OCD and that uh, went untreated in his life. And it kind of, it really um, caused his life to spiral out of control. Um especially during a time period when people did not address publicly address their mental illnesses and, you know, and could be ostracized for them. And so um, he also wasn't the greatest person. Um, I mean, he, he was a womanizer and he was, uh, I believe he was anti-Semitic and probably, and I think he was also, um, you know, anti-Italian for many different things that he did in his life. Uh, he was also a product of his time, but uh, this film is about, someone trying it's it's almost an acre story it's about someone trying to fly as high as they can in in cinema uh taking on the studios the richest people in this industry taking on the richest people in uh, the aviation aviation world and then of course all this comes sort of crashing down as the government uh steps in to look at his finances and his lifestyles and everything and DiCaprio does such a fantastic job playing this guy who um has such broad ambition yet has um you know these these extreme weaknesses and so uh it's really a film where you see DiCaprio switch over from being the you know uh youth idol of cinema into taking on more mature adult roles and um yeah it's it's such a fantastic movie yeah you know I I saw this movie once and it was it was massive when it came out really mm -hmm. and and let me just say that um when Leo starts peeing in jars <laughs> I realized that's how I felt about this movie that I am not a Leo fan. I'm not a fan mm. of this movie. I just like, I was like, no, no. I was like, uh, <laughs> give me such a headache. And mm -hmm. I think that's partly deliberate on Scorsese's part, right. To show like, especially how you said, like he suffered from OCD and it went untreated and mental illness when goes untreated, like it, it can lead you to spiral out of control. And if you try to capture that in film from that person's perspective, it's like a whirlwind. And yes. I, I think Scorsese did a great job of portraying that. Mm -hmm. And and you know, despite the fact that I'm not a Leo fan, like I think this is an it's a great yeah. movie. Um, yeah, I will I will say like uh, Scorsese doesn't necessarily have OCD, but I think Scorsese has been very open about his anxiety um and the life choices he had had made over the course of his career. He was uh, severely into cocaine for a while when he when he was uh you know, rocketed into into uh, celebrity in the seventies, and a lot of those things, uh, his insecurities got the better of him, and um, there were times when he had very famous breakups with with uh, the women in his life, and he could not muster the strength to get out of bed or leave the house or to feel like he could be seen by other people, and um, he was he, he had been hospitalized for that at one point for just complete exhaustion. Uh, and I think he is able to take that the experience and uh, translate it to the screen in many different ways and across all these movies we're going to talk about. But this one particularly um, with Howard Hughes's inability to to move past his um, his mental health really comes through here. And he really feels like someone who who who, uh, who could put their experiences on the screen to make it feel genuine. I think that definitely comes through. It really does. Yeah. So like I said, I, a great movie, despite the fact I don't like the lead role. <laughs> but anyway, it's not like we're yeah. going to have to talk about him again or anything. Um, 
<laughs> what do you have uh, coming in at number five, my friend? Yeah. So number five, we just started talking about his historical dramas that he uh, was making. But um, previous to the 21st century, he was kind of making contemporary movies, uh, even though Goodfellas is a film set in uh, 20 years to, uh, before it was made. But uh, the movie that really shocked the world that he made uh, well, I wouldn't say it like shocked the world in a way that like people like it changed everything, but it shocked the world that he, as a filmmaker, would have made this film is The Age of Innocence from 1993. It's an adaptation of an Edith Wharton novel about uh, New York at the end of the uh, 19th century. And um, it's one of those requited love stories between a man who's married and a woman who is, uh, I believe, the cousin of his wife, who's also in a, in a crumbling marriage. And he is in love with her. They're, they're really in love, but he can't uh, find the strength to leave his marriage because of what the back, his social backlash he's going to get from that. And, um, you know, it's like a drama of, of um, a very mannered drama. In this, in this high society world in New York City. Uh, but coming from Scorsese, it's like looking back at the history of the city that he's from, uh, looking at uh, a specific time period that sort of uh, many consider to be the uh, the birth of the great city. You know, it's on the cusp of, of really taking off in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, he takes a lot of inspiration in this film from paintings and changes his style a little bit slower uh, instead of fast cuts there's a lot of transitions uh, and so or a lot of like fades and, and things in the way that the editing works and so it, it, it sets you into um, sort of a feeling of a different time the way different things the speed of a different time I should say um, and uh, it doesn't have the the same exact speed as our contemporary times and um, this is his first collaboration with Danny Day-Lewis in the lead and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's excellent in the film as well. And I think uh, this film shows, you know, how much of a artist he really is. This is the film that he followed, um, like his first major film after Goodfellas. He made a film between the two of these, but this is like a great ju juxtaposition of a film um, that's as fast as possible about uh, the speed of a life of crime. And then the slower film about high society. Um, you know, during the Gilded Age. I saw this one a long time ago, and uh, seeing the trailer again reminded me of several things. It's one is that, like, I think almost all of Scorsese's movies, and not all of them, there are some exceptions, but they're almost all dramas, and pretty long dramas. Mm -hmm. And in seeing Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm like, that reminds me, and there's something we'll talk about later I'll ask you about, but man, Scorsese likes to use the same actors and actresses and 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 I was like, you know, but you're right. This movie is a big juxtaposition against, you know, his crime thrillers or his mafia mm -hmm. movies. And this one's a love story, and mm -hmm. it's a it's a tangled one. It's a love story about two people who are married. So it's like an affair story. So yeah. it, it's like, in some ways, I think it's a, a conversation of saying, this is nothing new. It's been happening mm -hmm. for a long time, unhappy marriages and love and love is complicated. Um, but I think in, in another way, it's an important film for Scorsese to demonstrate that he is more than just Goodfellas now. Like, yeah, 
because just a couple of years before, and I don't know the film that came in between, but I imagined mm-hmm. after Goodfellas, Scorsese was like painted as the mafia director. And this one I think is important because it shows that like, hey, I'm more than just that. I can do something else. Yeah. yeah. Um, he talks a lot about in this particular film that the violence in it is unspoken. It's the emotional violence that the society is is um, um, enacting upon these characters. Um, so I think it's interesting that he finds the film itself to be violence, but violent, but in a different kind of way. Um, but yeah, after well, I don't know his his depiction as being a mafia director. I don't. I think really uh, took off with Casino because between Mean Streets, which was made in seventy three, he didn't make another mafia film until Goodfellas in nineteen ninety. Um, then he makes Casino 95. So I think that's the third time he kind of makes a film like that. And so that's where that really uh, takes off. Um, gotcha, gotcha. But just for context, between uh, Goodfellas and The Age of Innocence, he made the uh, Cape Fear remake, which is um, something I can touch upon here in a little bit. But um, yeah, I think uh, him still trying to find uh what is this place like he made this mafia film and is this going to define his rest of his career and so here he is making this drama that no one saw him doing because it's the least masculine of his films um one of the most uh emotional moments of the movie is someone taking off their glove and touching uh you know hand to hand for the first time their 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 skin actually touching uh and it's such a delicate um touch that he has in this film that i think it really shocked a lot of critics that they didn't think that this guy who's known for his mass brutal masculine films was able to make a movie like this i dig that i dig that and it it really goes to show how important this film was for him and his filmography without a doubt Mm -hmm. now why don't you take us to our number four which is quite a departure from that one (laughs) <laughs> yes it is uh so yeah so i want to talk about scorsese making pure entertainment um his films are highly influential on many number of other filmmakers but i think his style the way he moves the camera the way he edits uh the pacing of his films has a really broad influence across all filmmakers that follow him uh, but when he wants to make just a movie that's purely entertainment um his style really um takes off and to me the best film that he's made in this way is the departed from 2006 um this is a movie that i find endlessly watchable i know you're probably you're probably gonna disagree with the the lead of the film um (laughs) or your opinion on the lead of the film but i think like just watching a fun cops and robbers movie made for adults that's ultra violent uh it's um once you get hooked on the thread of this movie like boom 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 things happening and you, you just get carried away with the the plot um and it's really wild that this kind of film of all of the great movies he made has made about different uh subject matters especially his films about spirituality or um you know the seduction of Life's, lives of crime or these deep uh character studies he's made this is the film that got him the most critical and award praise of his career this is the film where he finally won an oscar for best director he won an oscar for best picture um but it's just pure old-fashioned down and dirty entertainment um, and it pays a lot of homage to the gangster films of the 30s um and yeah, I think uh, the other film like that's sort of like this is the film we were talking about was Cape Fear, uh, or Cape Fear is a remake of a 60s thriller, and um, it's about a criminal who gets out who doesn't think that his lawyer 
uh, did enough to get him off of a rape charge, and now he's getting out of jail and he wants revenge on the lawyer. But even in that film, um, there's a lot of things that Scorsese brought to that movie that's uh, uh, mining the the idea of revenge and dissecting um, middle class American marriages and 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 uh, the institutions of marriages in general. Like it's got a lot of uh, a lot of other things beneath the surface of it in the subtext, but the departed on the other hand is just just fuck a fucking blast uh from start to finish every time you watch it. So I mean it's almost 20 years old at this point and it hasn't uh, other than some technology and things in the film, like it really hasn't aged at all. Yeah, so out of all that, I'm gonna give people the in case they haven't seen the brief synopsis, because you talked about the oh, film sure. without telling anyone yeah. what the film <laughs> sure, is about. Yeah. <laughs> so so the film's leads are Leonardo DiCaprio, which is why Gregory Day was like, I bet you don't like this one. <laughs> um and but up playing across from Leo is Jack Nicholson, and there's like a slew of other people. And for me, Jack Nicholson yeah. saves this movie for me. Yeah. But so you have cops, the Boston State Police versus the Irish Mafia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the state police put a uh, undercover in the Italian in the Irish mafia, and the Irish mafia have a rat in the Boston state police. So it's just like cat and mouse between the two, and it just it, it explodes. Um, and I think you are right that this this film is a ride, and it is my favorite of his films without a doubt, regardless of Leo being in it. There's there's so many yeah. really great people in this mm-hmm. film and i think out of the entire list this film is probably the most accessible to people today like it's still fresh oh, yeah, the, for sure. the, like, uh, yeah matt damon is the, uh, the yeah right right matt damon's in it um there's yeah. a slew of yeah. people Wahlberg is in it uh mm-hmm. so i mean i think uh, i think this is a deservingly at at the top end of your list um even though yeah. leo was in the movie <laughs> yeah and i think it's appropriate now to just kind of bring up like if, if you've never seen a scorsese film like he's known for fast editing freeze frames uh constantly moving camera um and that's sort of his he has so many different things he uses he, he can use slow motion at times um very effectively but i think those uh tools that i just mentioned are the things that really take off and make it a part it just move at uh you know 180 miles an hour yeah and flog and molly music here and there throughout the movie helps as well um, <laughs> yes the soundtrack of that one is like really 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 good i like it a yeah. lot yeah yeah all right where we're we going for number three my friend yeah number three is a film another really uh favorite a big favorite of mine is uh called bringing out the dead and this one's sort of going to be related to the next pick on this. But uh, Scorsese's kind of held as a guy who makes two types of films, even though his, his entire filmography is very eclectic. He either makes gangster films or he makes films about spirituality. Um, and he's made, uh, even in some of his gangster films, especially Mean Streets, he, he delves into spirituality. Um, That's, uh, he, he is a Catholic, but him is... Uh, he, the way he's trying to mine, like how you toe the line in this world, how you, how you, um, you know, how do you live a, a life, you know, in servitude of the mission of of, of your God or or whatnot. But uh, he's he finds this film called Bringing Out the Dead, uh, which is about an ambulance driver uh, who is having a 
a moment of crisis over his job because he, someone like him gets into this job to save lives. Uh, but he's so burned out working in New York City overnight that he thinks that his job now is to to escort the dead into the afterlife, to be a witness to the death. And this is a film about great struggle of like trying to find your compassion in witnessing death. And uh, it's set in this wild world of the end of the 90s before or the early 90s, excuse me, before uh, Giuliani cleaned up the city and so there's a lot of drugs a lot of violence a lot of um homelessness in the city and it's uh starts nicholas cage as a ambulance driver who's i think it's just set over three nights where he has to be witness to the horrible things happening in the city and whether he actually has um, the ability to save anybody or is his real mission in life to be the witness and um help people die with dignity and this movie was a huge flop, even though if you watch the trailer, it looks spectacular, and it is spectacular. Um, and it's not a false note in the entire film, but no one really wants to see a movie about compassion. Um, they want to see movies about um, any different other emotions, and compassion is a hard one to ask people to get on board with. And I think that's the reason this movie doesn't didn't really um, succeed at the box office, but it's such a great film and it's got a great soundtrack. You want to talk about soundtracks, which is something we haven't talked about at all. Uh, is that every single Scorsese film has an incredible soundtrack, uh, whether it's a score or it's uh, pre existing music that he uses. But in this film, it's like he uses the clash again to really um, amp up the speed at which the city moves, or he uses REM and some other 90s contemporary songs uh, to kind of set the REM. Set the t- I haven't thought about yeah. that in a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, those are I think those are a little more used a little more to get the uh, the mood, uh, right, right, or the 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 time frame because it's in the early 90s. But I will say there's a really great scene in this film set the red red wine, um, the UB40 song from the late 80s, I believe, or early 90s. I can't remember. Um, that takes place in a in a drug dealer's apartment that he has to go into. And um, it just fits the mood so well. Um, and he's just a master at picking songs. And so um, check this one out. It's, 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 uh, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, uh, it's a spectacular film. This is one I have not seen, but this is one we have talked about. And I remember talking about it with you. I don't remember which list it was, but I told mm-hmm. you then, and I will tell you now, I want to see this movie. The trailer looks mm-hmm. amazing. It looks mm-hmm. like Nicolas Cage at his best. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of an ambulance driver a a medic an emt is supposed to be about Mm -hmm. saving people's lives and this one suddenly has a transition to think that he's supposed to witness people dying and it's like no no you're not you're supposed to save people all right yeah but it's like crazy (laughs) um and because like you said and and for like a lot of a lot of newer lo-fi listeners and they're like well new york in the the early 90s and giuliani what are you talking about people know giuliani of today Mm -hmm. from something very very different yes Giuliani was a mayor of New York, but in the 1980s, New York was a very, very different place. The yeah. crack cocaine epidemic was going on. The heroin epidemic was going on. I mean, like people talk about the opioid epidemic. That's illegal drugs. We're talking about mm-hmm. the heyday of crack and heroin coming into the United States and like international drug cartels. I mean, like the 80s were crazy for New York mm-hmm. and an ambulance driver following them at their overnight shift in New York City with that backdrop, that's fascinating to me. And that, I think, sells me on the idea of why an ambulance driver 
could then start seeing themselves as someone who carries souls to the to the other side rather yeah, than yeah. someone who is supposed to save mm -hmm. lives because at that point in time in new york there was so so much death going on yeah i think for big context like this the late 60s through the 80s all the way through the end of the 80s like new york was defunded and it was just like you know abandoned buildings and rampant crime and just uh uh very dangerous place uh compared to today where we have the disneyfication of times square and it's very clean and there's a lot of initiatives to to turn that city around uh for good or bad um and I know a lot of people have different opinions about the cleaning up of the city but um this film really makes you feel and we're going to talk about another film uh at the end of this list too that makes you feel the absolute danger of what this city was capable of during that time period yeah, without a doubt. And and I think, like you said, and I'll agree with you, like without getting into any of our opinions about what's happening to New York today, New York is a far safer mm. place than it used to be in the 1980s. And before, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, without a doubt, without a doubt. Mm. Yeah. But let's let's carry into your number two, because I think you're right with the, the whole spirituality thing. And this is one I had never even heard of, my friend. Take it away. Oh, really? All right. Yeah. So to get to the heart of uh, Scorsese's films about spirituality, he has made many movies about um the search for meaning and spirituality and um he has made most recently he made that film silence with andrew garfield and adam driver about the jesuit priests in japan uh that's excellent uh you know about priests Snooze trying to find fast whatever yes <laughs> <laughs> you know trying to find the you know the, a priest's uh meaning in in this in this foreign land uh and then he's made Kundun, which I think is an excellent film as well. It doesn't get enough uh, attention. His film about the Dalai Lama. Um, and uh, this film is, to me, his best film he's made that's directly about spirituality. It's The Last Temptation of Christ from 1988. Uh, it's an adaptation of a novel uh, written about the life of Christ. So it's not based on the actual scriptures. And it even has a disclaimer at the beginning of the movie that this movie is not based on the Bible. <laughs> um because that i'm going to get into this a lot of lots to talk about here um the novel is an exploration of jesus as a man and him dealing with being a man not him and how he's going to um overcome that to you know become god um or to, to or how he's going to balance these two things but if he's supposed to be 100 percent uh human and 100 percent god then how is he supposed to overcome the things that every man can over that every man um is susceptible to and so um this is the it, it kind of reworks things uh even in the novel and so he's a carpenter but he builds he builds crosses for the romans and that they use to execute people on and uh he's got this terrible pain in his head and he has to go on a journey to figure out that this is the way that god is communicating with him these migraines like these he describes them as he's like eagle claws through his brain and so he has to go on this journey to where he kind of realizes that he is not listening until he starts to and then he starts to to talk and he starts to gain a following and he you know and we know the rest of the story after that but scorsese takes his film and he 100 puts every ounce of his being into the tale of this man's journey um, played by Willem Dafoe, who just does a hell of a job. Um, and I'm not someone who is 
religious. I don't really, I don't follow any of the teachings that um, come through Christianity, but this film really is is very effective uh, in showing the struggles of this person to try to do the right thing, to try to lead people to a better life, to try to lead people out from tyranny and offer them equality. Um, there's so many great scenes in the film with him saving Mary from being stoned or his argument, constant arguments with Judas, not Judas, excuse me, his guest with Judas, uh, who's played by Harvey Keitel. Um, and Judas is the one who's keeping him in check to toe the line of the revolution against the Romans. Um, but the thing about the film that's very controversial is that, uh, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's in the title, it's The Last Temptation of Christ. The Last Temptation um, in the film is um, he's gone through all these trials. He's about to be crucified and an angel comes down to him and tells him, you're not really the son of God. You don't have to die this way. And so he is tempted with leaving the cross, turning his back on everything and living a life as a normal man. And there are scenes depicted in this movie and in the book of Jesus having sex and having a married, married life and having kids. And this did not go over well with a lot of people uh, in the world. And when yeah, I imagine it <laughs> he tried to make this movie uh, after the King of Comedy and uh, there were protests, there were um, just as he was trying to make the film, people were up in arms. And so that's what caused that movie to, to be uh aborted before he even got to production and led him down the dark path that led to the after hours uh but he finally gets this movie made he shoot in morocco and uh david bowie's in the film he plays punches pilot and it's got peter gabriel did the soundtrack and it is a phenomenal movie but when it opens it's utter chaos like the protests there are bomb threats there are people there's violence uh at the cinemas this movie comes out in um and all those things really overshadowed the movie. But I think in recent time, it's it's gotten a reappraisal in the last 10 or 20 years. And it's gotten the respect it deserves because it's not just some um, propaganda Christian film. It's a really a film about how you, um, you know, how you persevere towards your ideals, how you um, try to do the right thing and how you... Um, are able to balance your spirituality with the way the world is uh and the world is you know a very difficult place to live in so um not much has changed since the world that's depicted in this movie um and it's it's a fantastic movie and i think it's if you're a Willem Dafoe fan he does a hell of a job in this movie um and yeah i can't recommend this film enough and it's just it's very powerful and um I consider it to be a you know one of his five best films that he's made. Yeah, I had never heard of this one, but when I watched the trailer, I could immediately see that oh, this must have caused such an uproar in <laughs> in, in the country. Like, mm -hmm. I think if this movie came out today, it would cause a major uproar in mm -hmm. the country. Like, yes. correct me if I'm wrong. I I might have seen it wrong but it looked like in the trailer too that jesus was even kissing a man at one point does that actually happen or did i see like wrong in the trailer no no he does i think uh i mean i think the scene that's in the trailer is when judas kisses him um, okay which is but still the, the idea of, yeah. of jesus kissing another man full yeah. on on the lips yeah. if that yeah. came out in a movie today mm -hmm. this country that we live in would lose its yeah. block like yeah well, that shouldn't have anything to complain about because that's in the Bible. Like Judas kisses him. That's how he how he identifies him to the Romans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I don't doubt it would. Yeah. You don't hear many people yeah. talking about it, though, right? That's, sure. that's my yeah, point. Yeah. 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 Um, 
man, I could have just imagined during the Ronald Reagan era, the 1980s, yeah. this film mm-hmm. comes out. Yeah. And yeah, I could imagine all the backlash he got leading him towards a dark mm-hmm. place. Yeah. For sure. And craziness, craziness. I, I definitely... I may not check this one out next, but I'll definitely it's, I'll put it on my list for interesting movies worth giving a chance <laughs> to. Oh, um, yeah. But why don't you take us to your what I would say not unexpected number ones? Take it away. Yeah, yeah. So number one is also a tie because uh, what I really want to talk about is his greatest strength as an artist is that he has the uncanny ability to create films that are told solely through the character's subjectivity. Um, and we see this time and time again in his films, Goodfellas being uh, one of the earliest films he made in this in this way. But uh, even in Wolf of Wall Street or in The Aviator, um, he has an, a, a really strong ability to put you in the mind of its central character and you see the world from that person's uh, perspective. And two of his greatest films do this better than any other films ever done this. It's Taxi Driver from 1976 and Raging Bull from 1980 um taxi driver which uh we had talked around uh in the conversation about joker and the king of comedy uh is about a vietnam vet who can't sleep who's a taxi driver at night in mid-70s in new york and he is driving around in the worst parts of the world um at this time like the crime the lawlessness the the dirty quality of the city it's unkempt like there's no law it feels like and he is spiraling out of control and um i think scorsese has even talked about today like he feels like this film so prophetic to today where the character main character of travis bickle played by robert de niro um he could see in all these mass shooters these people who are isolated from society um and he you know travis bickle's a character who every person he tries to reach out to in the movie uh rejects him or is uh can't connect with him and so he ultimately decides he's going to um choose violence as a as a outlet for his loneliness to um to do something and um that unfortunately is something that's you know very prevalent in our society today uh but the movie puts you in his point of view like the way you see the other people in in new york uh, the way you see uh, women from his point of view, the way you see um, the black population, it puts you, you know, in his in the way that he thinks and it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, and Raging Bull, on the other hand, is a is a film that is about an immensely um, insecure individual who's a boxer and um, the violence in the ring is only a an outlet for him to uh, get over his insecurities in his life outside of the ring which is involves um being you know trying to be controlled and manipulated by the mafia as well as his inadequacies with the women in his life and um raging bull is the film that really um had to one of the resets of his career because this is the film he made when he crashed and burned with his anxieties and his out and his uh drug abuse in hollywood in the 70s and uh it was sort of a reset for him to come back and and make a an artful black and white film about a boxer but all the violence in the film and the way that uh, this character just sort of brutalizes his own family and the women in his, in his life and the his opponents are just an outlet for this guy um and it doesn't make him any better um so you're you're thinking you're, you're putting this mindset of this person who's only getting worse and worse and worse over the course of the film yet Scorsese has this ability to make you 
sympathetic to them. Um, no matter how awful they are, there's some sort of relatability to this character. And um, he does this better than anyone else. And he uses all the tools of cinema, whether it's slow motion uh, or fast cutting or um, tracking shots. Um, he utilizes all these tools to put you in their mindset. And, you, you know, as an audience member, you can't escape that mindset. So you just, it has a profound effect on you. Whereas lots of other films just can never reach this, this, uh, this level of, of uh, getting into your mind this way. And so these two, without a doubt, have to be number one. Okay, let me start off by saying I've seen both of these films and you're correct about one and you're incorrect about the other. <laughs> Which one do you think I think should be number uh, one? I think you say Taxi Driver. You are correct, sir. How dare you put a sports movie mm -hmm. as number one mm -hmm. on a Scorsese list? This movie is um, not. That movie is not about sports, sir. <laughs> I, I know. I know it's not. I know. But, but, you know, I've only seen Raging Bull once. It was a long time ago, and I remember mm -hmm. it being good. But compared to Taxi Driver, like, that I've seen multiple times. And I yeah. think even 50 years later, goodness, this movie still plays into what's going on today and it makes me feel like we have not learned anything as a country mm -hmm. um as a species like really we've been talking and doing these same things over and over and over again and expecting different results you know yeah. and mm -hmm. taxi driver brings you down a path and a journey that i think is a little more relatable than raging bull and a boxer and the sports movie Although, sorry, not a sports movie, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, um, yes. So I think, for me, Taxi Driver is a little more accessible and relatable mm -hmm. too, even though I think it may be even more far-fetched in some ways. In some other ways, it may not be. Um, but I think you are right. These are his two, like the two crowning jewels in his tiara of filmography, if you will. <laughs> uh, I think without a doubt, these are yeah. the two that... And when you think of all Scorsese, these are probably people's one and two. Although you did mention previously Wolf of Wall Street, and I think a lot of people know that one more currently and put that one pretty high yeah. as well. Sure. Um, but I completely agree with not having it on the list as well compared to these other ones. Like mm -hmm. you have a top 10 list that's a top 12 list, really. So like, yeah. Um, no, I dig it. I think you're right with Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. But, but I mean, that being said, so your top 10 list, is a top 12 list it means it was mm -hmm. hard it was really it hard is. to make this mm -hmm. list i could not imagine how you actually had to pull back and forth from yourself with that being said did you have an honorable mention like lucky number 13 was there anything that that you almost put on but you just couldn't quite fit to it yeah there's he has so many films that i really wanted to talk about um but you know some of them have similarities and things but one thing that we can't talk about a lot because there's not really a film about them is Scorsese as the educator because um, he does a lot of restorations on films he has the uh, the film archive that he has started where he is actively restoring films he talks about the preservation of movies he talks about the importance of of uh, making sure films are available to watch uh, he's out there right now fighting to keep Turner classic movies alive so that people can watch movies from other eras and learn from them and study them um he does his talks on these things and so the one film um that i think is worth mentioning as an honorable mention is the film that i mentioned at the top of this list to uh that, that um 
inspired this list is that his personal journey through American movies since it's come out in 1995 and it's uh it's quite long it was made for television and so it's I think it's four to six hours long uh, but it's different episodes it's different episodes so like it aired I think over three nights or something um and so but he takes it from the silent era through the 70s and he talks about these different avenues of films and the different things that happened in the history of cinema um, and how it changed and how it influenced him and uh, you see a lot of the through line of those movies and how um, artists had to work under the conditions of Hollywood and how they were able to make entertainment and make classics, movies that were made to last, but also able to talk about certain things and the way they did them and the way they uh, subverted the norms and stuff. And um, I think this, pardon me, is a testament to him as as not only a filmmaker but as someone who was a historian and educator to make sure that visual literacy and this um, art form that he loves survives because right now it's a it's an abysmal state out there for uh this medium of art and entertainment and uh i think if you watch that if you, especially if you're interested in movies and listening to scorsese talk about movies for that amount of time which i can listen to him read read the phone book and I would and I would love it, but um, this is the perfect thing to go watch. Uh, it's hard to find, but you can watch most of it on YouTube. Um, yeah, it's a great piece of educational cinema. Yeah, with that, I think it's a good time to to bring in Scorsese's latest comments that we we mm -hmm. briefly spoke about at the beginning of the episode. Is that you know recently Scorsese has been on um, on record as you know coming out now this time. In the past, he did, but this time he didn't directly call out comic book movies or, or big blockbusters. But he did talk about how now it seems the studio system is mostly attracted towards big budget, big box office draws. Like so, i.e., your your comic book movies, your massive blockbusters, your your avatars. You know, they like studios are really going for movies that can make a billion dollars. Your Fast and the Furiouses, your like your big action set pieces, and yeah, your, your he's franchise really, ability, right? Franchises, definitely franchises. Mm -hmm. And and Scorsese starts talking about how this has really begun for for a while. It's jeopardizing the the direction and the creativity of directors directors who who want to work in the industry who want to make certain passion projects but they'll never get picked up because there's no franchisability for it um, mm -hmm. is that kind of what you got to from his comments recently or you want yeah, to add I mean, to that yeah i mean he's talking about a few things in there i mean it's all tied together with that uh his comments about marvel and um movies as uh attractions attraction rides instead of an art form or um right business instead of art yeah yeah i mean i mean i think he he understands that there's business side to it but i think sustainability of this business they're the the studio heads are, are gutting all of the sustainability out of it as well they're not making smaller movies to take a chance on things and um, trying to find new avenues that audiences want to see. They're not making movies for adults. Um, they're trying to make movies that have the they have the biggest budgets possible, and they're trying to make the biggest profit possible. Um, and they're really heading in a direction that, you know, as this culture shifts, these movies are going to fail, and they're they're going to put themselves in a position where they can't produce movies anymore. Uh, there's a streaming side to that, which is also um, leveling the leveling all movies to be the same 
uh, on the same playing field, and so you don't know which ones, um, which what's the praise for this one? What am I supposed to see? How do I find out if this one's any good? And it's just like everything is it's kind of gutted at this point. There's no uh, tastemakers anymore, uh, except for you're just being told by the major studios that these are the movies you should be watching because this is the only ones we're making. Um, and there are all these big budgeted CGI fests, whether they're superhero films or transformer movies or whatever. Um, and uh, I think people get up in arms when he said that those movies aren't cinema and we can argue what that word means, but it's for him he's talking about a a medium that uses the tools of the moving image to convey psychological and uh, emotional um, human experiences on the screen. And these films don't do that. And uh, in a large part, the other side of that is, and other filmmakers have talked about this and even stars in these movies talk about this is that none of these big budget movies are making movie stars out of the people in them. People aren't going to see a movie because so-and-so plays Captain America or the Falcon or Star-Lord or whatever superhero it is, they're going to see those characters. And so you can change the person who's playing Spider-Man uh, five, six times and no one gives a shit. They're just, they're going to see Spider-Man. Um, and so the people right, playing that's them, a very good point. Yes, yeah, they're not really, they can't go and star in another movie. And then that movie is going to make back a, you know, a huge profit because that star is bankable. Um, you know, we have very few stars who are bankable now, you know, your Tom Cruise's, and um denzel washington's denzel washington's yeah and so these guys are yeah yeah i mean i mean these guys are aging out too and so there's not not a lot of younger people who are going to be able to sustain the studio system uh outside of an intellectual property character you know um and it's killing the industry (laughs) and so um it's a rarity when you have a film being funded that's gonna you know do something i mean scorsese is in a position where he can get like his new film killers of the flower moon uh funded because he has he has clout to his name and he has he has robert de niro who's in his 80s and Leonardo DiCaprio, who's in his late 40s um as the stars and they're bankable movie stars but if he had made this film with two younger people i mean i, I don't think that uh he would have gotten this the green light i don't think he would have gotten the big you know uh, the ability to release a three and a half hour movie theatrically without the star power, right? Like no one's going to want to come see them right, because right. they don't have the star power in them anymore. And so he's on to a lot of things. And I, um, he did say something that I thought was interesting that if you fee people one thing and one thing only, I'm paraphrasing this, I don't know the exact phrasing he said, but they will only want more of that one thing. Cause it's all the, that's all that they know. And so the last 20 years of movies have just been, conditioning the studios have just been conditioning audiences to this is the only type of movie that there is and so if they see a movie that's made from a different perspective and we talk we've talked about many different movies on this podcast that are from weird and wild perspectives of the world and uh from different regions of the world and have different cultural or contexts and stuff and um they're not going to know what to do with it they're going to watch it and they're going to turn it off because it's foreign to them even if it's an american movie but it's you know it could be in black and white it could be um you know if you're used to only watching movies starring robots and and uh young people and and attractive people you're not going to want to watch a movie about people who are your parents ages or your grandparents age and the struggles that they're going through you know um so yeah i think i 100 support the things that he's talking about because the 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 entire entertainment industry 
or the this corporatization of this industry is really um, killing itself uh, for profit and and not trying to consider any other um, avenues that it has. Yeah, I mean, that's why all the streaming services now are coming out with a premium tier. Like they're adding advertising into all of anything that you watch. Mm. And then you can pay a, pay a premium mm. tier price to have no ads. So basically, mm. if you have streaming right now, no ads, in order to keep that, you're going to have to pay more for it. Otherwise, you're going to have ads. So they're turning streaming back into cable television, except for yeah. on demand, which we had cable on demand before. Like that's it's nothing new. They're yeah. just like you said for profit, right? So they're mm -hmm. they're realizing their their model that they had was broken. They weren't making the profit margins that they wanted. So they're reverting to old school stuff. And I think I think you are right. But I do have a kind of a, a last question, and it's two things wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. But we kind of go out on this one. So one is like you said that Scorsese, you know, he brings in people like Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, so he can get his projects funded. That being said, I mean, he brings in Robert De Niro again. He brings in Leonardo DiCaprio again. Mm -hmm. Like Scorsese has a habit of using the exact same people. Oh, excuse me. Time and time and time again. And you, you start to wonder, you're like, well, Scorsese, why? Like, are you just stuck in the past? Are you really going to put out something new with these same old people? Like, like is Scorsese the past? Or is does he still have something left to show audiences that they haven't seen before that audiences actually want to see? Something that we haven't seen. I mean, what do you think? Take it away. Yeah, I think uh, so a few different things in your question here. I think one is Scorsese has made roughly about 30 movies and he's also made a bunch of documentaries and out of those 30 films he's only made eight or nine with de niro um i That's think almost one third of them though sure um but i think that uh you know there's something to mine in a in a, in a collaboration between artists um someone who can match the intensity of the individual who's directing the film um and he fell in again with dicaprio in his later films um, but I can see how people get tired of seeing the same director with the same people over and over again. Um, but I think um, they've been fresh enough to, at least with the De Niro films, with the, the Caprio ones, I feel a little less, there's, a, there's less diversity in the roles. Uh, but with the De Niro ones, I think they were constantly pushing what they could do, uh, going from Raging Bull to the King of Comedy, um, things like that, uh, where they weren't always trying to do the same kind of film together. Um but as, as far as is Scorsese the future of cinema, I don't, I don't think so, no. He's 80 years old, um, but I think what value he's trying to leave or, or impart upon us as he is very honest that he's not going to be here for much longer. I mean, he's in good health now, but he is um, in the twilight of his life. Um, that if we don't do something to revalue cinema, um, then it's going to disappear and there's not going to be anything left of it. Excuse me. Um, and so I think with that, um, if you look at this new movie, I don't know how much you're following of his new, his new movie that's coming out, which obviously I haven't seen yet, but um, the idea that this is an 80 year old filmmaker making this movie that's based on a book about these killings of these, the Osage uh, tribe people who have, 
uh, oil in their land. And the book is from the point of view of the FBI. And so he's shown that he's uh, someone who could still learn uh, even at his age is that he didn't want to make that movie. He got into it and he was like, this movie's not going to be any different than any of the other movies I've made with DiCaprio. If I'm, if it's just going to be about him being a cop trying to solve his murders. And so they flipped it, rewrote the entire film to explore the perspective of the, the victims of the story, the people who were being murdered um, and how the Americans treated the indigenous um, people uh, depicted in the in the story and kind of across uh, cinema and other art forms in general. Because I was watching an interview with him recently where he was talking about like as he was growing up in the forties and fifties, watching American movies like indigenous people weren't really they weren't treated with any respect. They were treated as people who don't understand money and they don't understand um, our you know our society and so they're treated as less than so he really wanted to make a film that was that showed them as who they truly were uh, and with respect and in collaboration with them and so um i do think he's he's showing that not everyone in his um you know not everyone in his age range should stick to the same thing all the time and trying to make the same kind of movies all the time and um and so he's incorporating like De Niro into this film as the bad guy in the film um, instead of the lead uh, of the film. And so he is, you know, finding different ways to, to utilize the people in his, in his films. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are many gr great collaborators, collaborative teams, you know, Spike Lee and Denzel Washington were one of them. Um, I don't know, Samuel Jackson, Quentin Tarantino, a lot of these different uh directing and acting duos but uh scorsese and de niro are just one of the absolute best and they did a lot of great things to change the course of american history so uh yeah i don't know i mean i guess it just depends on the audience and whether you you know how much mileage you get out of watching uh artists collaborate um over multiple projects or if you'd like to see someone mix it up a little bit you know um yeah i think it comes down to the viewer but um i think he has a lot to impart upon this new generation that should be taken um you know as 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 an axe to what's going on right now and to 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 create a revitalization of the industry so um yeah he's got a lot of validity what do you say martin scorsese are we interested when he does hang up his little director's hat or his little microphone <laughs> um or the little yeah. funnel whatever you yeah. used to call him back in the day mm -hmm. i mean because he's megaphone. been at it for a while for sure um yeah but that's it. That's that's your top 10 list, my friend, an excellent list indeed. But before we head out, have you got anything going on lately, Gregory Day? I know before you were doing Hits for Lady. What you up to these days? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to have to recontext, uh, recontextualize this uh, moving forward. But uh, I've transitioned out of doing Hipsville AD and uh, am now working with a few partners in a new endeavor called Gourmet Cinema Gang, which is going to be focused on hosting movie screenings here in Austin. Um, and uh, it's going to be sort of the spirit of Hipsville, but trying to create a community out of it and do screenings. And and I'm still going to be writing on the Substack. You still find the bad.data.substack.com where I'm going to be writing things as a little rebranded um, for the Gourmet Cinema Gang. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how I can uh, take what we're doing as a community and uh, here in Austin and bring it over to the podcast and talk to you about certain things. 
Um, but yeah, you can follow us on Instagram right now. I'm trying to branch out to other social media branches or social media platforms. Uh, it's gourmet spelled G O R E M E T underscore cinema underscore gang on Instagram. I love it. I love it. Screenings out in Austin, Texas. People, if you're out in Austin, check out Gregory Day and the Gourmet Cinema Gang. And thank you so much, my friend, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I always dig it so much. And people, that's just a snap of what's going on in the world today. Well, Fort Poly Sci is more than just me. It's the we that we be. Pickering and Day, signing off. Yeah. <laughs>